0: just as soon to be in a light bulb. lost we out on a summer sea i haven't got first liver because everybody's down on
1: So that does it for me. It is now 5 p.m. time for me to get off the air and for you guys to hear from living writers. That last song was Joe Liggins and the Honey Drippers doing Everyone's Down on Me. Before that, we heard Omar from Omar and the Howlers with Wine-Headed Woman. You're tuned in to WCBN FM, Ann Arbor. It is 5 p.m. and I will see you next week or rather you can tune in next week.
0: Every
2: experience is a learning experience, including LSD. There's no such thing as a flashback, Danny. You need to get a job so that you can curb this freeform anxiety of yours. WCBN
1: FM and
3: It's freeform!
4: 88.3 Anya Toaster. This is Professor Gus.
1: good afternoon. I'm T Hetzel, you've Got Living Writers, and today I'm so happy to have in the studio Alexander Weinstein here to kick off the first show of the semester, the first show of the year. Um Alexander, thanks for being here.
4: Uh thanks so much for having
1: me. With your debut collection of short stories, hot off the presses. Hot off the presses. Really, yeah. right? Yeah. Came Picador. out yesterday. Yeah. Yesterday, yesterday <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Ooh, I almost had to drop the book. <laughs> um so from Picador, Random House, um, and you're, you're going to be on a book tour. But tonight is your book launch at Literati, 7 p.m., Yeah, Washington and 4th Street. Um,
4: so excited.
1: It is so exciting. So you'll be reading. Will you be signing books? Yeah, signing Will books. A
4: you... uh, little question and answer, if anybody has questions. Some Q&A. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so,
4: and then afterwards, there's a after party from 9 to 11 at the Yellow Barn, Uh, With Big Fun, a seven-piece Miles Davis electric band uh, playing specifically for the book launch. And, you know, all of Ann Arbor is invited to all of these things. Oh,
1: that's wonderful. And so that'll be after the reading at the Yellow Barn. That's right. And that's off Miller. Uh,
4: Yeah, it's off Huron. Huron. That's, That's okay.
1: That's off your own folks. Don't make the mistake I just did. <laughs> sure. Driving on the west side of town. Um, so Alexander's book is Children of the New World. A quick shout out um, to James and Isabella at Picador for sending along the book. Um, like earlier in the summer. Yeah. So thank you. And these are good stories, Alexander. Ah, no, thank you. Um, I'm hoping that later on in the show, you'll definitely read some for yeah, us. Yeah, for so sure. Read some so be we be happy can, to. That'll be great. As well as tonight at Literati at 7 p.m. Um, okay. So without further ado, actually read your short bio, and then we'll kind of go from there, Alexander. Um, Alexander Weinstein is the director of the Martha's Vineyard Institute of Creative Writing. He is the recipient of a Sustainable Arts Foundation Award, and his stories have received the Lamar York, Gail Crump, and New Millennium Prizes, have been nominated for Pushcart Prizes, and appear in the anthology New Stories from the Midwest 2013. He is an associate professor of creative writing and leads fiction workshops in the United States and Europe, and is on faculty at the Lloyd Hall Scholars Program, right here at good old University of Michigan, go blue. So <laughs> so you're sort of, you're, you're affiliated with many places. You're a busy man, I Alexander. Am. Yeah, totally. So what are you writing? Uh, are you
4: when, you <laughs> when know, you're... whenever I can. Uh, sometimes what'll happen is I'll get a story that comes to me right before I'm about to sleep. And one of the things that I do that really works is that the moment that I feel that sort of bite, of a story, I sit down and I write. So I might be going to sleep at, you know, whatever it is, midnight, right? I have to teach in the morning. Suddenly I have a story hit me and I'll be up for the next three hours getting the first draft of that down. And
1: so you'll write it. Yeah. Even if you have to get up at six the next morning yeah. or whatever else is press you'll just
4: that's the best idea. If I have don't, you, have I you find, learned?
1: Yeah. What? Yeah.
4: <laughs> I find that you know, if I hold on to it, I say, "Well, I'll write in the morning." That that story kind of molds between that time. You know, it grows mold. Yeah, um, yeah. And so then, and then I also do formal writing where I'll write from usually on Wednesdays from eight nine a.m. to about nine p.m. So I write for about twelve hours with only breaks for some food and. Obviously, bathroom and whatnot, <laughs> and and so I I work kind of sporadically because of that, um, but I work intensely, right?
1: Right. Yeah, and you're willing to actually stop. Whatever yeah. it is that you're doing, yeah. I mean, we're
4: talking also about like pulling off to the side of the road somewhere safe if the yes. story comes, and and writing then too, writing pretty much whenever it strikes. Um,
1: are any of the stories from Children of the New World, the the new story collection of yours? Or is there one like pulling off to the side of the road to start?
4: I think Rocket Night actually really? was. Yeah, that was a off to the side of the road.
1: And hopefully. Maybe we'll hear that one, folks, later on in the show. It'd be great. (laughs) Do you remember the actual image that came
4: to you? Well, you know, I passed a sign that said capsule night, because I guess that's uh, what you call like curriculum nights, right? Capsule night, or I don't really know what capsule night is. And I thought it was so bizarre, this school that was saying capsule night. And then immediately I thought of this rocket capsule and that, you know, what would be the situation wherein a school would have a rocket ship sending off. Of course, that's not what happens at all. It has nothing to do with Capsule Night. But that gave me the premise for the story.
1: And it's this wondering, and it's this yeah. asking of the question, and then your imagination. <laughs> took yeah,
4: on. exactly. And as, <laughs> as, you know, when I read it, you'll see, but it was also at that time I was dealing with bullying in my son's school. He was dealing with this, you know, in elementary school. And so the story really took on this kind of edge of... Or a metaphor for bullying,
1: and and that's kind of somehow the way it goes when we have these stories that swim, the ideas swim to us, then the other things that are happening in the subconscious or conscious mind are then connecting into them as well, completely as part of the fodder. Yeah, yeah, and the well, and the book, um, Children of the New World, is dedicated to Peter for Peter. It the, is the dedication at the. Um, yeah. Some of the first words we see in the book. Yeah. Um. I mean,
4: he's the light of my life. You know, I love parenthood and I love fatherhood. And uh, so, yeah, I wanted to dedicate it to him uh, for sure, you know.
1: And and Peter's heard some early drafts of these He stories. does. He's and, kind
4: yeah. of like my first reader um, early on. I mean, he's 13 now. So and the book took 10 years to write. And so early on, he would hear drafts and I'll read stuff to him now, some of them, when he was about eight or nine, some of these stories are full of sex, and so I'd give him like the PG version, right? Right. right. Uh, and then he would, but he catches a lot of stuff. Now he'll say, "No, that's not how the technology would work. That's not exactly the right type of app." And then he'll keep me honest in my stories.
1: And there's a lot. So not only is there a lot of sex, there's also a lot of technology. Yeah, in this book, for sure. And it's it's sort of env- envisioning sort of the near future. But I mean, the future, nonetheless. Yeah, I mean,
4: you know, some of these stories, I would say, are set 10 years from now.
1: Or yeah, yeah, hopefully not the, the frozen... the Right, yeah, the last yeah. one. Yeah.
4: But, you know, 10, 20 years from now, if I'm to be pessimistic, we will see some of these things. You know, the uh, psychic technology wherein suddenly we can communicate through thoughts and, and these sort of things.
1: Layers of thought. Yeah. Layers, yeah. Um, and, and Alexander, for... Um I also have to say I love your author photo. Oh You're thanks. like here I am and I'm, I'm by by the ocean. Yeah, Martha's
4: like. Vineyard. And uh one of my favorite places. I mean my home too. That's where my parents live and uh love that that moment of fall photo with the ocean crashing behind, right?
1: Yeah, and is that where you grew up as well?
4: Uh, summers, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now my parents live there full time and so that's where I go home for holidays and of course where I started the Martha's Vineyard. Institute of Creative Writing. And you started that. I did. You're I found, the founder. I'm the founder, and the, yeah. And the director. Yeah. And and really, that came out of wanting to create a, a community for writers, a uh, really nurturing community. There was a lot of, I think you don't realize this when you first step into writing, but there's a lot of faceless rejection, competition, hierarchies. And I wanted to break all that down and sort of create a community where writers could come together, work on their work, uh, not have this sort of hierarchy of who gets to work with which, you know, right. which professor, the which author, <laughs> the masters, and then everybody kind of goes home feeling horrible afterwards, right? Uh, so here, the authors and poets that are faculty are right beside all of the other writers that come.
1: And probably working on their own work at the same
4: yeah, time. Yeah, completely.
1: Yeah. And also one of the ways it seems like you break down these hierarchies is it's, it's all ages, Yeah,
4: isn't that's it? that's right. Or, 18, or in, 18, 18 to 81, yeah. I would say, or 99. Uh, oh, you okay. know, 81's been our, our oldest uh, attendee. And so you have 18-year-olds working with 81-year-olds. You have new writers working with established writers. Again, the premise is that we all learn from each other, and we can all learn and be inspired from one another when we move into our creative work.
1: And you've been um, like you're no uh, you're no stranger to creative writing, creative writing programs. Yeah, um, you went to Naropa. I at, did for, as under
4: an undergrad. That's right. So, Which was fantastic, right? So, the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics.
1: Yeah, the full name. <laughs> yeah, it was it was
4: incredible. A uh, lot of experimentation. I learned a lot about postmodern writing, mm. taking risks, doing experiments. Uh, I was also doing dance performance at the time and performance art. And so there was just this sort of collaboration. And
1: composing the pieces? Is yeah, that...
4: I was directing the pieces and working with musicians and dancers and artists. So there was this sort of explosion of creativity there during uh, my undergrad years.
1: So that sounds as it might like have inspired you to also found... The Martha's Vineyard program as well. Yeah,
4: very much so. I mean that that you know I just wrote about this because I had studied with Rabbi Zalman, who was this incredible seventy-year-old rabbi who had studied with all different walks of life and religions, and he taught this class called Rituals for People Healers which was how do you bring community together and how do you help people through difficult transitions where we don't have rituals, right? right.
1: right. And, and th- some rituals are falling away that we do have.
4: Oh, completely, yeah. And so that that got me started there. And I, I just wrote about that, actually, that that led in many ways to this founding of, of the Martha's Vineyard Institute years later. Little did I know yeah. at the time.
1: Yeah, when you're like in your 20s and then right. Yeah, have a dream of your future.
4: Exactly, yeah. Um,
1: and so can people read that is that out somewhere yet or? It is
4: um the Jewish Book Council just, and I can give a link uh, so that it's it's listed there, but the Jewish Book Council just put it out.
1: Oh, that's oh, yeah. that's wonderful, and people can Google that in the meantime, but no, stay listening to the program, everyone. I was thinking that you were teaching great classes, but um, this rabbi's class actually sounds <laughs> phenomenal. It was pretty amazing. Um, wait, But at uh, Siena Heights University, you're teaching not only creative writing, but diversity and in community um, inquiry and truth. I was like, that's got to be an amazing type it of is. class. It is, and what
4: I'm teaching now is a class called community um contemplation and action yeah. and that in there we do dance performance yoga meditation eastern philosophy catholic and christian uh mysticism poetry art
1: why not all mysticism well all it is all mysticism or, oh, okay. but
4: specifically i think the catholic and uh christian mysticism is very interesting, and you know, okay. of that, and then and then Judaism. I mean, we're trying to do world religion, really, right? Yes, and then the students are dancing for three weeks, which is amazing. So it's a very different class than my fiction classes, right? Or I teach a graphic novel course as well. And here in the contemplation and action course, students are really pushing beyond their boundaries. Uh, Siena Heights is a Catholic university, so a lot of students have never encountered some of these traditions like Taoism or Zen Buddhism and it's the first time that they're learning about this or Native American uh, shamanism.
1: We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back to talk more today on Living Writers. Alexander Weinstein is here. His debut collection of stories, Children of the New World in front of us. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. The Liz is doing the sound. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've Got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Alexander Weinstein is here. His debut collection of short stories, Children of the New World, just out with Picador. Seriously, just out um, two days ago. And tonight at Literati, um, Alexander, you'll be there. You'll be giving a reading. There'll be a Q&A. There'll be book signing.
4: It's going to be a party.
1: And then after that, you're going to take the party down the road to the yellow head, barn, and... head on down Huron exactly. to the yellow yeah, barn. Yeah, it's a
4: full night of celebration <laughs> and
1: hear some music. Yeah, um, could you? You thanks for choosing all the songs for today's program. Could you, you tell us a little bit about the last one we just? Yeah, heard?
4: Charles Bradley. I mean, I just love Charles Bradley. Right, so he got discovered. I think it's sixty-three or sixty-four and years of, course, of age. Yeah, six four years of age, just like maybe maybe a decade ago, maybe eight years ago. So I'm not you know do the math, but I'm not quite sure how old he is now. But I mean, he is touring, and couldn't be happier. Right, he's singing these beautiful soul songs of love and community and
1: An and autobiography. Yeah,
4: autobiography his his own life of of difficulty. So I find him really inspirational in that way. If you ever see him in concert he's just pouring love on the audience right? I mean he talks to the audience and tells you that he loves you and uh, seems incredibly genuine. In that, so one day, my big hope—I'm going to put it out there now on the radio—is that you know that I'll be able to have an after party where Charles Bradley plays. Right? That's the that's the new hope, well, the, uh, new dream there.
1: Well, maybe maybe it could happen on this book tour. You don't there know. You you're go. heading to you Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, some other places. Yeah, actually um, going to
4: Brooklyn. Right. You, there you go. I'll have to see what I can do. Yeah, right, but put it out there. And get the, James on the
1: horn. horn. Right? <laughs> uh huh. Um, well, well. Th- thanks again for picking the songs and for starting us off with Alice Coltrane. Another like...
4: favorite. Oh, <laughs> I mean, she's incredible, right? Jazz harp. Not as well known at all as as John Coltrane, as her husband. And I think she's just fabulous, right? And then she. One of the things that's really interesting about her is that she disappeared. Um, I mean, she went to a monastery and stopped playing publicly. For I forget how many decades, but she was playing these songs to essentially God or the gods, um, which I would love to find recordings of. I mean, can you imagine? And then she reemerged here in Ann Arbor. She played a concert, which you went to at see, H- right? At Hill. Yeah. Yeah. And then shortly after she died, right? And I was like, oh my God, I wish I had gotten to see her because
1: uh, yeah, complete favorite. How was the and- concert? It was it was amazing right. and I was I was sort of seated up in the gods there you know quite quite far right. away but the sound was in, incredible She was a you know a a a, a dot of light on the stage mm-hmm. <laughs> but still the music so beautiful Yeah I want yeah there must be a recording of that
4: I hope so I mean I'm sure right I have to search it out but these are in
1: our in the are... UM archives right Yeah
4: right I've bet. Um, but these are people that really inspired me, too. I mean, I feel like all of these musicians um, and then Sun Ra and Fayla Kuti and Rasan Roland Kirk and these musicians have really sort of pushed the edges and the boundaries and kind of did the impossible uh, in, in many ways. Right. I mean, they made music like not really had been made yet or took risks that hadn't been done yet. So that sort of work inspires me in my fiction to try out the boundaries, figure out where is it? What what can I risk, you know, personally? What can I, I put on the line?
1: And how do you, so how do you do that?
4: Well, you have to figure out what you're afraid of telling, and then you have to tell it, right? I have to look a little bit, I mean, speaking personally, what are the difficulties and the struggles and the hopes and the dreams that I have And then find a way to give that to the characters so that the characters want to—so that I care for them, so I have compassion. And the characters want to make their lives better in some way and often are bumbling in these stories. I mean, they're trying to, and they don't quite understand how, but they want to either take care of their family or they want to have a better relationship or love well. Right, And so in many ways, while the stories are sci-fi or speculative fiction— and dystopian, they're autobiographical, many of them, right? These are the things I go through. For example, The Cartographers was written shortly after a breakup uh, with someone I had loved for dearly for five years. And so that became Cynthia in that story, where um, he's writing letters to Cynthia that ultimately don't and can't get answered. And that was me at that time. I was writing letters to the person that I still loved. That went unanswered right so there's that risk right and of course you wouldn't know that unless I unless I say that, but I think that's what gives heart to the characters
1: and makes them very human right because even though it is speculative fiction it is set in, as we were saying it's in the future mm-hmm. it's um, there's definitely a different world at play it's still the world of the the human world that we understand like our 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 flaws. Yeah. And I like think you were saying some bumblings and are even and how we're trying. So some of the most noble qualities.
4: Yeah, that's I mean, that's what I think makes the stories realist is the characters. Right. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, they're dealing with God knows what. Right. Online avatars that are getting STDs and right. robotic children <laughs> that need burying and not things that we yeah. tend to have to deal with yet. But it's getting closer and closer, it seems. Right.
1: So is this? So because I now I see what's how you are making yourself vulnerable in these mm. stories, and how willing, like how far. Yeah, I have an idea. Yes. rather of that seeing the fiction. Um, is this is this a way of working in these these worlds, these stories that you've been? because you said it took 10 years in the writing of -hmm. of the book, the story collection. Um, Is it sort of your way of thinking, or is it something that from Naropa, like there was times that you were writing other kinds of fiction, because oh, you're obviously yeah, writing
4: uh, you know, nonfiction Right. Too. So it wasn't until Indiana University, when I did my, where I did my MFA, that these stories came out. And in fact, before that, I wasn't writing speculative fiction or really magical realism at all.
1: So how did you find that as your risk? Because it's another risk. Speculative fiction, for yeah.
4: example. Well, let's see. The Saying Goodbye to Yang, which opens mm-hmm. the, the book, that came out of my computer crashing, And it's the first story that opened up the whole floodgates for speculative fiction. So my computer crashed, and I felt—and it took a lot of my work with it at the time. So I was distraught, emotionally distraught. I kind of loved that computer, too, because I'd had a lot of stories. And I was feeling this emotional connection to my computer. And then my students that I was teaching— we're all getting smartphones around this time and saying, oh, I love my smartphone. I love, right, I love, I love it. it. <laughs> I'd die if my smartphone, if I lost it. And I realized, oh, okay, so we're starting to have these emotional connections to technology at this point. And that was where Yang emerged, right? So Yang is the robot child in the story. The big that, brother. The big brother that malfunctions.
1: So amazing how you use that term, like a yeah. big Big brother term, and yeah. it could be something that's ominous because there are, are obviously always oh, yeah, ominous course, notes. Right. Yeah. But then instead, he's the he, he's the one we mourn.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, I I believe that Yang, this robot, has a soul. I think I'm as fooled as the characters. I really feel for this this poor robot that malfunctions, and so so I started writing that. And the big change that happened for me was, up until that point, I'd kind of been writing sharp, critical, social satire, a little bit in the vein of David Foster Wallace, brief uh, interviews with hideous men, a kind of very scathing, cynical work. And my characters were drawing up on me. They they actually, I like to say that they all got together and protested. And they said, you know, to hell with this author, (laughs) because he just sacrifices us and doesn't treat us with respect. And so I started writing this story. And... I had started writing the Dad in the same sort of cynical way, and then I said, "No, you know what? make him like you uh, i'm a you know i was I'm a father, and I work you know this character is working hard and and kind of struggling to make ends meet and so I put that character in, and that changed everything. suddenly, I learned about compassion for my characters, and I had no clue where this story was going, and it really wrote itself along the way that opened up the door for all these other technological critiques and I realized I had a lot of things to say about technology
1: It sounds like such a huge moment that I had suddenly I had compassion for Mm -hmm. the character
4: Yeah it's essential in my for me at least as a reader and a writer that the stance towards characters is compassionate rather than ridiculing Um, Why? Well because that you know if you look at it from a human level it's not putting yourself above the other person right it's so easy to judge in general judge people judge and, and not know what they're struggling with not understand um, what what they love right mm-hmm. this is this is the challenge I think as human beings to be compassionate in a Buddhist sense in many ways right yeah. to have that compassion and so if one is judgmental as I am and I, I work to be less judgmental but There's a way that you can it's part of the
1: human condition. (laughs) It's part of
4: the human condition. But then there's a way I can set up a stance with my characters where I'm gonna be smarter than them. And what I think the flaw that happens then is that whatever it is that I set forward to prove in those kind of stories, I prove. Big deal. So what? I get to learn as much as I already know. Right. If I empower the characters to have heart and have their own lives, they're gonna reveal something to me. That I don't know yet, even though I'm the writer. And that moment is fabulous, right? When suddenly I say, Oh my God, thank you, character. I didn't know that about life.
1: It seems like for this um the the narrator, the voice of saying goodbye to to Yang, um, you definitely allow the reader to glimpse um uh the the character's um is it It's Mika. What's the the dad's name? I'm sorry, I'm blanking out for a moment here. You know what?
4: I'm blanking about his name as well.
1: Well, it's... (laughs) (laughs) We should ask the author (laughs) what the name is. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Hold well, well, I'll go back to the question just because we because it's yes. this narrator's voice is so strong. It's not that I ever really I think we know, like, we meet the neighbors, the daughter, the wife, the um, and Yang. Um, but his his um, his consciousness, we we see him sort of judging even his neighbors, like, oh, for sure. with their children, like, he has like a you know, a, a clone. You know, clone your own bumper sticker yeah. on his car, or yep. so. And 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 he's like the the type who's cheering for like a
4: sports teams sports and teams paints his faces the, for paints, Super Bowl games and all of that.
1: Yes, and yep. so, so you see some of the edges and the judgments of this this character, who's our protagonist yeah. and um and who we actually see him dealing with other people's judgments of his family and his his son Yang. And th- but there's these moments of like it, it feels like that's a good risk to take to show his edges as well. That's right. So that he's not above the other characters. Yeah. And
4: uh, and in many ways that's the sub narrative of this story, right? I mean the main crux of the story and the conflict is that they formed a very deep emotional connection with their robot Yang, and now they have to figure out how to mourn or deal with his passing. But underneath it all, it's really also a story about him realizing how little he knows about the world, even though he judges, he thinks he knows about the neighbor, and, oh, what a sports fanatic, and with his clone children, and what have you. And lo and behold, that neighbor is a wonderful human being, uh, that, that cares a lot. And there's a lot of human connection all around this character and his family, even though he doesn't see it yet.
1: And I can see why you would choose it to be your lead story, mm. not only because it's the one that changed everything for you mm-hmm. with the compassion and gave you this sp- yeah. like trajectory that you've been working with, but it's frames. It's what's to come right. as well. right yeah, very opens much so for that yeah we'll take a short break and then we'll be back and then maybe maybe we'll hear you right, read that great. would be great today on living writers alexander weinstein is here his collection of short stories children of the new world out now and he'll be at literati tonight at seven i'm t Hetzel. we'll be right back
3: Criminal. Tree of knowledge of good and evil, get digital. Technological to make human mechanical. Submissive, robotical. Evil device, video game, fun, satanical. Ways to download and how to install the criminal. Can target practice from home inside living room wall. This is why you in a prison cell. Generating money the for them. The, spiritual to get digital. the unnatural. Putting out that signal, hypnotical. Expect us not to accept that life is beautiful. Manipulation, methodical. Modified mood, making foods a genetical. Spreading into the dark water, the medical. Drug suicidal, from Doctor Diabolical. Drug addiction, pharmaceutical. Generating money, <laughs>
1: If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Alexander Weinstein is here. His story collection, Children of the New World, just out with Picador. Um, so we've been talking about Rocket Night. Since almost the very beginning of the program, it's been it's been here with us. And Alexander, do you mind reading the story for us? It'd Be my pleasure. This will be, I think, it could possibly be a living writer's first, where the the guest, the writer, reads an entire piece. So we're All gonna right. go for it.
4: Let's do it. Okay. All right. Rocket night. It was rocket night at our daughter's elementary school the night when parents, students, and administrators gather to place the least like child in a rocket and shoot him into the stars. Last year, we placed Laura Jackson into the capsule, a short squat girl known for the limp dresses that hung crookedly on her body. The previous year, we'd sent off a boy from India whose name none of us could remember. Rocket night falls in late October when the earth is covered by leaves. Our children have begun to lay out their Halloween costumes, and their sweaters are heavy with the scent of autumn. It's late enough into the school year for us to get a sense of the best children to send off. Alliances are made early at Rose Hill. Our children gather in the mornings to share their secrets on the playground, while the other children, those with stars and galaxies in their futures, can be seen at the edges of the field playing alone with sticks or staring into mud puddles at drowned worms. In the school gymnasium, we mingle in the warm glow of lacquered floors, surrounded by wooden bleachers and parallel bars, talking about soccer games, math homework, and the difficulty of finding time for errands with our children's busy schedules. Our kids run the perimeter, some playing tag, others collecting in clusters of boys around the fifth graders with portable game consoles, the girls across the room, in their own clusters— Susan Beach brought her famous home-baked cupcakes, the Stowe's brought Hawaiian punch, and we brought plastic cups and cocktail napkins and placed them on the table among the baked goods and apple slices. The boy to be sent off, I believe his name was Daniel, stood near his parents holding his mother's skirt looking unkempt. One could immediately see the reason he'd been chosen. The mildewed scent of thrift stores clung to his corduroys, and his collar sat askew, revealing the small white undershirt beneath. His brown slacks were held up by an oversized belt, whose end flopped lazily from his side. The boy, our daughter told us, brought stubby pencils to school, whose chewed-up ends got stuck in sharpeners. He had the habit of picking his nose and wiping it on his pants. His lunches were nothing more than stale crackers and a warm box of chocolate milk. There was a smear of cupcake frosting on the corner of his mouth, and upon seeing this detail, we knew our children had chosen well. He was the sort of child who makes one proud of one's own children. And we looked over to our daughter, who was holding court with a devil square, tightening, then spreading her small fingers within the folded paper, while counting out the letters O-R-A-N-G-E. At eight o'clock, the principal took the stage beneath the basketball hoop, a whine from the microphone as he adjusted it. He turned to us with open arms and welcomed parents and students to another year at Rose Hill, He thanked Susan for her cupcakes, and all of us for our contributions to the evening's festivities. Then, forgetting the boy's name, he turned to the family and said, we hope your child's journey into space will be a joyful one. We all applauded. His parents applauded less than others, looking a bit pale, but parents of the chosen often seem pale. They're the sort of people who come to soccer games and sit alone in the stands, a gloomy sadness hanging over them whose cars make the most most noise when they pull into our school's parking lot, and whose faces within the automobile's dark interiors remind us of a sorrow none of us wish to share. His speech delivered, the principal invited us to join him on the playground, where the capsule sat, cockpit open, its silver sides illuminated by the glow from the launch tower. It's a truth that the child to be sent into space grows reticent upon seeing the glowing tower and the gaping casket-like rocket, We saw the small boy cling to his mother, unwilling to leave her side, and so we let our children loose. I watched my daughter pry the boy's fingers from his mother's leg as two larger fifth-graders seized his waist and dragged him away. The nurse, a kindly woman, helped to subdue the parents. She took the mother aside and whispered to her while the gym coach placed a meaty hand on the father's shoulder and assured him the capsule was stocked with water and food tablets, plenty to last the boy a long time into the future. To be honest, it's a mystery how long such supplies last. It's a small compartment within that capsule, and we are all aware funding was cut to our district earlier this year. But still, we assured them there was nothing to fear. The boy, if hungry for company, had a small microphone inside the shell, which would allow him to speak to himself about his journey, his thoughts, and the mysteries of the universe. The boy was strapped into the capsule, his hands secured, and he looked out at us. He spoke then for the first and only time that night. He asked if he might have one of his pencils with him. It was in his pencil box, he said, the one with the brown bear eraser. The principal assured him that he wouldn't need it in outer space, and the custodian noted that the request was moot. The boy's desk had been emptied earlier that day. So they closed the cover. All we could see was the smudge of the boy's face pressed against the porthole. When the rocket blasted off, it made all of us take an involuntary step backwards, the light of the flames illuminating the wonder upon our children's faces. The capsule rose from the playground, leaving behind our swing sets and jungle gym, rising higher until it was a sparkling marble in the night sky, and then finally gone. We sighed with awe. Some applauded. And then we made our rounds, wishing one another goodnight, arranging playdates and returning to our cars. Those of us on the PTO remained to put the gymnasium back in order for next morning, and the boy faded from our thoughts, replaced by the lateness of the evening and the pressure of delayed bedtime schedules. I'd all but forgotten about the child by the time I laid our sleeping daughter on her bed. And yet, when I took out the recycling that night, I paused beneath the street lamps of our cul-de-sac and thought of all the children high above. I imagined them drifting alone up there, speaking into their microphones, Reporting to themselves about the depths of the unknown.
1: Thank you, Alexander.
4: Sure, my pleasure.
1: I, I love that last line. It's so
4: sad. So sad. <laughs> it's tragic.
1: As you were reading this, I was like, <laughs> "Well, everyone, if you're driving and listening, enjoy your drive time <laughs> with living writers and Alexander Weinstein." But it's an amazing story. No well, thanks. Um, yeah, it's painful. It's, so, it's a painful It's painful. One. I mean, you know, you just ah,
4: oh oh, you hate those that 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 uh, school district, right, and those parents and the administrators. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I found myself. I think in the margins, I had I, I had to write like terrible next to one part, <laughs> like like about like the. <laughs> Um and then there'd be other moments where I'd be writing beautiful about the prose itself, like mm. how the language was working and like that moment of um foreshadowing when um you're describing the cho and, and how you leave it at the chosen instead of the chosen student or the chosen mm-hmm. boy like the chosen. It's like it's as that the hinge is kind of really turning on his fate at that point. Yeah, right. And and as we he- And hear I think about it's the, the
4: apathy too that's so disturbing. The apathy and the clear I don't know what a privilege. It's a you know the the parents are privileged, yeah. and and their kids are privileged, and it's these kids that get lost uh, that they don't even they don't even think of right. Mm-hmm. They're not even thinking of the horrors they're committing, which of course is the metaphor for for bullying and for um, discrimination and all of these kind of things which happen so often in schools,
1: and and not that it's always always the case but in this story um in rocket night um as you desc- as we meet the parents and you describe them they're also then sort of judged in this description as being mm. the ones that sit alone on the bleachers right. or their car is the loud one in the parking lot so there's more there's judgment to go or, to rain down on more than just the chosen child yeah, very much the- so um, which
4: is how it works often.
1: And then you have them getting back into their cars, which I th- just to finish mm-hmm. the thought was like this idea of the um, they're in a capsule of their uh, own, yeah. and very and nice. Then well, no, I you didn't, wrote I, it. I, 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 didn't,
4: I always like when <laughs> these things it. are pointed out to me. That's a, what a smart, uh,
1: very nice. <laughs> yeah, that's that's excellent
4: that the uh, the author chose to do that
1: <laughs> completely deliberate. <laughs> that's right.
4: That's usually when one's supposed to say, yes, of course. Right, right.
1: But the but the empathy that I, I mean, you finished reading the, the story and actually for a while, I feel like we were stunned in the story for a moment because mm. you I could see you were in it from reading it. I was in it from listening. Everyone was listening. was I mean, you're in this different world that you've created. Right. It is one. So and this is not a new thing, I'm sure, but it is. It's one that was reminiscent in sort of the shock of it, of like the, the lottery by Shirley Jackson. Of course. Yeah.
4: And it has that echo, right? So the first girl to be sent off, her last name is Jackson. Yes. So there's this Laura, kind of reference.
1: Laura, Laura Jackson?
4: Yeah, so there's a reference to, to the lottery. So that was deliberate. That was deliberate. I mean, I realized as I was writing it, um, this, is, this is very similar to, to the lottery, just a, a newer world. And, and I like that, right? I mean, the lottery, anybody that's heard or read that story, it's shocking and disturbing and horrible. And so this has that same flavor to it.
1: Definitely. But you're dragging us into the, as you say in the title of the collection, Children of the New World. Yeah. And so defining the terms. Yeah. And the collection
4: itself, right? So that comes from the title story. Um, But there's a lot of children that are speckled throughout this collection. But it also talks about us as that we, we as a society seem to be infantilized by technology right i mean and and what i mean by that if we want to look around is you see grown men and women playing little games on their cell phones launching birds and crushing candy as a pastime or searching for pokemon go and so so there's this kind of childishness which technology is and not a good childishness not a playful one right. but a, a kind of infantilization of our culture
1: and so that is leading people not to be maybe, like, to be more on the surface, to not be... um I think I so, for
4: they... sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that technology and our social media platforms really make us much more superficial, right? Where We're both judging people immediately on their appearance, and now you just need to think of dating apps where you're swiping people away. And so people, you go window shopping for humans, and they become expendable, right? That's all based on superficiality to our own postings where we curate our lives where suddenly we are traveling and we're like oh this will make a great selfie and then you spend the next 30 minutes you putting on some filters and then you know you put it up and then you hope everybody will like it and and there's just this very you know and it's it's all with the pretense that we're connecting and that we can connect and of course that's the optimistic view and yet
1: well, it's when, a kind of connection. It's a kind Let, of connection, Let's yes. take a short break and pick up with this. Sure, like, it It's a kind of connection. We'll see, okay? Yeah. Um, we'll take a short break, and then we'll be back. Today on Living Writers, Alexander Weinstein is here. His story collection, Children of the New World, out with Picador now. We'll be right back. back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Alexander Weinstein is here. His story collection, his debut story collection, and what a debut it is, folks. Children of the New World. Um, and tonight, um, let's see, it's September 14th, 2016. Just to make, mark this in time That's for right. everyone. <laughs> um, you'll be at Literati at 7 p.m., For the book's launch into the world, it's the first book party. It is. It's the launch. It is. You're sailing the tall ship out of so thrilled (laughs) on the Huron. Yes, that's right on the Huron. Down the Huron (laughs) to the Yellow Barn. Yeah. Um. So 7 p.m. Literati. You can see, meet, hear these stories from the writer himself, Alexander Weinstein. So at the break, we were we started to talk a little bit because about technology, right? Because um. Not only our children throughout these, yeah. the book, technology is part of this this new world, mm. this um, dystopia, this yeah. s- like your the speculative fiction that that you've you've been writing. That's right. And connection. So we're feeling like there's connection, mm. and there's images like in like one of the stories, characters just need to open up layers to each other, right. to beam an image into the mind of the other. And they forget how to even speak, use words.
4: Yeah. And and so that's a story openness, right? Where there's a kind of... Great title. Thanks. uh, Where there's like a technology that you can access different layers of the other person. This all happens psychically, right? And so if you want to know my name, I just give you access to that layer. But then if you want to see pictures of my childhood, that's like a little deeper. And we have to know each other first. And then I'll give you access to that. And of course, in the story, it's a love story, and the the characters end up doing total openness, which is this thing that uh, you can do that right so the spooky. hipsters yeah. the hipsters are all doing this, and so they that's where you give access to everything, including your subconscious, which you don't even know about yet and so if you're in a restaurant and suddenly you're watching like you know a cute waiter or waitress going by, your partner will know that immediately, and it causes all sorts of trouble, right and yeah, so the The premise there in this idea of technology and connection and the premise that technology sells us on is that it's going to connect us way more and we will be globally connected and all that. And it's true that we are. But at the same time, we're becoming disconnected. And there's no way not to see this when you ride a bus, go on a subway in New York City. Everyone's looking down with their earbuds in and scrolling, right? Pokemon Go, you just got people wandering the city, everyone searching, their, their cell phones. And so I don't think that we're connecting in the same way. And, and like you say, in the story, these characters stop talking. They don't know yet how to express their emotions.
1: Almost without realizing it. And it, the mm-hmm. occasion when the characters figure it out is when they go to um, uh Uh, the the woman's father's cabin that's sort of off the grid right and they they don't get signals so they can't use the signal to enter each other's uh, psychic realm that's
4: right and that's what then triggers it's it's him the main character having to speak again that triggers him actually say i love you which as he references we just knew that right we didn't need to say it because we could feel it But there he has to say it, and suddenly what tumbles forward is all of the layers that he hasn't shared with her at that point, all of his pain. And it's only unlocked because of the human connection that they have.
1: Which was speaking, forming the words that then someone would actually hear.
4: And Um, this is is the truth about, you know, I work with students. They like to text one another and not call and talk. I mean, most people do this now, right? You don't talk to somebody. And so they were talking about dating and saying, no, you'd never called the person before you went out on a date with them. And I said, why not? Like, what are you talking about? And they said, no, because it's scary. You'd have to hear their voice. And, of course, I was floored and very depressed about it. Said, yeah, but that's how it is. Everyone's, you know, texting one another. And there's this fear, especially of the younger generation, of face-to-face interaction.
1: Well, it's more intimate, mm-hmm. perhaps, and, and will become and yeah. strained and if it becomes strange then it becomes fraught a little bit <laughs> more right and and i
4: think it, that in some ways we don't yet know how to deal with those although we could gain a capacity because i the human face has so many emotions that it shows and yes. the human voice carries so many emotions that we pick up on subtly and that intimacy is a talent right it's a it's a certain talent or a strength a muscle that can be strengthened of how do you have Sympathy and empathy for one another, we can't learn that through screens and through usernames.
1: No, it is in the the contact itself. Right. And I, so, and this is exactly the section of openness. Um, let's see. Um, I had a, sca- so here's just a little, like a line that this reminds me of, because it's, we gain a lot from technology and people are able to access and, totally. and understand things, right, about each other. Um As Katie spoke, her hands moved in ways I hadn't seen people do since childhood, gesturing toward the lake or me when she got excited. So even thinking the things that we don't realize that are lost, like hand gestures, because if you're just thinking things, you wouldn't be using your body in this way to convey anything. And picking up from where I left off, I tried to focus on each sentence, sensing my brain's inability to turn her words into pictures. Yeah, And I thought, wow, that's so interesting because... Like you were saying about the muscle, if you if your brain isn't doing it, we will lose those abilities, those pathways, those connections. Yeah, and, and I, that's I and I think the ominous we, I part think, of the book, I think. Yeah, well, it is right. And, <laughs> shooting the child in the rocket into space also also but ominous these moments as well.
4: Yeah, and I mean that's the the you know of course it's tongue in cheek humor here, and I'm I'm making fun of. What we're struggling with, uh, but there is there is this sense of that we are losing that. You know, many of my students struggle to just sit and read a story, right, or an essay more than five pages. I'm sure you know this, right, because you because you teach, and and they'll tend to have like a couple windows open, so they'll have you know Game of Thrones playing here on low volume, and then something else over here, and then they're reading you know a story by James Baldwin, and there's like no way <laughs> that you can really appreciate that, and this is. This is one of the things that I think we have to struggle with now in this new world, which we're already in, of hyper technology, how to get it like you say, there's so many great things about it. We do connect with people, social protest, you know right now the the Dakota pipeline is getting thank God we know about that only through because the media has been blocking it, right? Um, presidential candidates are not talking about it. Except for Bernie Sanders sigh, I wish. But um yeah, so so thank goodness for the internet, it really and police brutality, all those things. It's it's really great for activism. Not always that great for social connection, I don't think, though it touts itself as the great social
1: connector. And so and and I think with this the stories in this book, it's it's also saying we just don't know. Like the first character mm-hmm. we might you know, we might think we know. Yeah. But, but we don't know yet, which yeah. is I guess it is the way of the world with all, all, of all times. Yeah, and and but if I sometimes feels like technology is speeding us up. Well, maybe definitely, faster right. Than I mean, you start can. to get
4: these invites to LinkedIn or God knows what it is. You know, and what's the next one going to be? Right, Some, there's there's always these like new things that people want you to join or you need to learn this, and there's. This kind of cool or tech-savvy, you know, you got these people who are like, check it out, look what I can do on this phone, and they're connected all over the place.
1: Well, I am aware, Alexander, yeah. that we sound a, a bit old, I well, would say, even right, as we
4: right, have totally. this conversation. You know, I like writing in stone and chisel. Right,
3: exactly. That's what uh, so you can really feel so the you words. You can really feel the
4: words. Yeah, back in the day, that's how it was done. Uh, yeah, but there is some... Um, But oh, but but see see how we're
1: well how we're laughing about this. It's that's what I also recognize throughout this book is there's these so many wonderful moments where there can be these terrible things happening, but you're writing about them in very funny ways. So I found myself being like, oh, this is funny. This is funny. Sad. This is sad. Funny. Like. Kind of throughout.
4: Yeah, right. I mean, I think of my writing as humor, and I thought of that for a long time until people told me these are really dark as well, right? These are very disturbing as well. But there is a lot of humor, right? In saying goodbye to Yang uh, when you know he malfunctions, and the service tech says, "Well, you know, I'll give you the head. We can separate the head, and your daughter can play with it." And of course, he's thinking the service tech—big deal, you know? This is just a piece of equipment, and the dad is like, "I'm not giving my daughter the head to play with." Uh, so there's this kind of absurd, yes, it's dark humor for sure, but um, kind of absurd moments, right? Recently, I replaced my printer, which actually printed out and published all of the stories in this collection. So it's a very sad moment, right? Here we go. you like, you've
1: been a good workhorse. You've been a good workhorse, you know, and
4: I got a new printer, and I'm taking it out, and it starts leak- uh, leaking ink all over the place, as though it was, you know, the a murder had yeah. happened in my house. You know, and I'm <laughs> oh, spending shit. the midnight hours like trying to get the ink out of and the carpeting. And it's
1: also on your hands. It's on my hands,
4: <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm in my stories right now, trying to clean up the mess of this, you know, poor, poor printer.
1: And so are you writing some new stories now, Alexander? Are you already pulling off the, to the side of the road to, to yeah, write stories?
4: Yeah, I am. I'm working on a second collection now, uh, which is very different, actually. It's a, a fictional tour guide to destinations that don't exist fantastical museums and uh, hotels of love museums of heartbreak uh, cities that where, where incredible musical instruments are played and so it's really sort of in the vein of uh, Italo Calvino and Borges uh, and very different than this collection um, you know play, playful in many ways this collection's playful too but uh, sort of playing with these magical worlds
1: Alexander, thanks so much for talking with me today. My
4: pleasure. Thanks so uh, much.
1: Come back and we'll talk about the next. The S- next
4: Sounds uh, great. I look forward the to stories it. stories
1: to come. Tonight, Alexander Weinstein will be at Literati at 7 and then at the Yellow Barn um, around 8 or 9. Yeah, 9 o'clock. No, the, nine the, o- the concert o- starts 9 then. o'clock for the concert. Um, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, thanks to the Liz for engineering. We've got sports coming up next. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
2: Takes the snap, takes the handoff to Smith, rolling to his right, still looking for a receiver. Breaks the tackle and he's
0: got a seam! Down the sideline, touchdown Michigan! No,
2: Gardner takes the shotgun snap, looks to his right and connect. Reaching for the end zone, touchdown Michigan, Amara Dharma. Up. Gardner makes the handoff to Smith, looking, firing, Jake Butt, one handed catch! He it, unbelievable catch. going on, everybody? My name is Chris Pickler. Um, I am co hosting the show today with Andrew Hussman, who is getting ready on the other side of the glass. Today, we're going to talk about something uh, very interesting. I read on Twitter during class like an hour ago. It's pretty interesting. Uh, former Lions wide receiver Nate Burleson uh, discussing uh, Matthew Stafford and the great comeback against the Colts uh, last Sunday. And he said the, that Matthew Stafford is actually going to be better without uh, wide receiver Calvin Johnson. An interesting take. Um, basically, uh, his rationale was that. Uh, Calvin Johnson was the very easy target to just go uh, through every single play. You can just find Calvin Johnson. But now he actually has guys like Marvin Jones, Anquan Bolden, Golden Tate. Uh, No one's that big number one receiver. And he actually is going to have to make the plays himself. And I think you saw on Sunday uh, that that was kind of true. And uh, while... While I'm not, uh, I'm not the, I'm not a, a quarterback. I'm not a football expert. Uh, I would like to say for those that don't know, I am, uh, I am very, uh, fairly competitive at the game Madden, which is uh, uh, the professional football video game. Obviously, NCAA uh, no longer makes the game, so that is the only football game that's out there. And I would like to say I'm a fairly competitive Madden player, and uh, it is something I've noticed that. Uh, last year there were a lot of times where when i'm falling behind third and 15 third and 20 situations or fourth down that i need i would just kind of throw it up to calvin johnson it would be pretty easy for me to um to just look for him and press the b button over and over again but